Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father, thank you for this time together, this this fall, this semester, this class. We ask your blessing upon each one who's come this evening. Thank you for the grace that you've shown to us in your mercy through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we pray that you will grant us uh, understanding of the Word of God as we seek to look into what you have given to us as believers. We might understand uh, something about the history and the beginnings of the church and the progress of the early church. We pray that we will be challenged by this truth and this knowledge, that our own lives will be challenged to live for Christ, to witness for Christ, to be an example for our Lord. Thank you for each one who's come this evening. We pray again that you'll be with them and smooth out the rough places this semester. We pray that that you'll give us good health and traveling mercies as we come each week. And we pray that our lives might honor Christ in all that we do. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. Uh, you should have some notes there. And... Uh, I've got some slides I'll be showing you here along the way. Um, Axe has a lot of historical data, a lot of historical interest, and uh, so I'll be showing you some scenes of places like Jerusalem. Has anybody been to Jerusalem? Nobody here has been to Jerusalem. Well, that's too bad. If you ever get a chance to go, go. It's really a great thing to go there and uh, see the places and so forth. It just, it's great. It adds another dimension and so forth. So we'll be looking at slides of Jerusalem. I'll try to give you some orientation of where these places are at we're reading about. And we'll be looking uh, at some of the places uh, in the book of Acts, some of the cities, locations. And next semester, if you're with us, we'll be looking at Paul's journey and places he traveled in Greece and in modern-day Turkey and so forth, Asia Minor and so on. So I think it'll help us to kind of get an understanding of what Paul was up against and what these, how these people were living and so forth. We'll begin tonight, uh, at least begin looking at some introductory matters to the book and just talk about some before we actually jump into the text. Of course, the title of the book, as we commonly call it, is Acts. And... Uh, of course, our Bibles come to us, originally the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language and copied by hand for 1,500 years. Numerous manuscripts, numerous copies that we had. The oldest ones date to around about 200 that we have. And uh, these manuscripts, some of them have titles and some of them don't. So the titles we put in the New Testament are not inspired titles. They're not, God didn't tell us any particular title for the Gospel of John. We call it the Gospel of John because we believe it was written by the Apostle John. And so Acts uh, gets its name possibly because Acts are Acts of the Apostles because it does tell us about the adventures, the Acts of the Apostles. Not too many Apostles, mainly Peter and Paul. Even though it's called the Acts of the Apostles, there's only two main Apostles. Now, we see others mentioned in the first couple of chapters. We see the 12 there and so forth, and the election of Matthias and so on. But mainly it's about Peter, and it's about Paul, especially in the last half. And that's kind of how the book divides up. Uh, one reason why Acts may not have had a title originally is that it's part, it's part of a two-volume uh, work. 
Um, it's uh, part of a two-volume work, Luke-Acts. That is, when we look at Acts 1 and 2, as we will in a moment, but I'll, I'll just put it on here so we can look at it. It says, remember, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So he talks about a former book that he wrote. And that former book is the book of Luke, or the Gospel of Luke. And there we have, in verses 1 through 4, the real sort of introduction to Luke-Acts. So this would have been like a two-part book, book 1, book 2. We would probably think of it as more chapter 1, chapter 2. But in ancient times, the word book was often used in what we kind of think of as chapters. And even if this is going all the way through the Middle Ages, when you read works by John Calvin or Martin Luther or something, they divide their, their, their writings up into books, book 1, book 10, 20, book 25, but they're really sort of like chapters. And so these, these have, yes. Stop one second. Yes. Music playing somewhere. Is that It's right there. I think so. Music. Good country music. Hey, I'm in the jailhouse now, I don't know how it got in here. Did it come from the internet? Sounds like it. Or is it someone's phone? Is it someone's phone? No, it's been here since I sat down. It's coming through iTunes store. Oh. <laughs> Don't ask me. Shut it down. What's your Was it previewing? Yeah. Why would maybe something on this remote I'm doing is clicking the iTunes store? I don't know. No telling. This is this is not mine, so I borrowed this. No, I, I didn't. Unless somebody's sending me stuff or. Uh, so anyway, uh, so Luke, we have the real introduction here, and he says, uh, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. So apparently Luke is saying here that a number of people wrote accounts of the life of Jesus. Now we know we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but... There were apparently others who wrote accounts and so forth. He says, many have undertaken these things, who were eyewitnesses and servants of the, of the Lord. Many people draw from that, and we get from Luke that he probably wasn't an eyewitness himself. He was, we think he was from Antioch. We think he probably was a Gentile, and he may have not been in Jerusalem and actually saw the Lord himself. So, so he's talking about people who were. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, so I've done this investigation of everything from the beginning. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, I've investigated. 
I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So here's this man, Theophilus, who has some relationship to Luke. We'll kind of talk about that in a moment. But uh, many people think that this Theophilus, whoever it was, was someone who helped Luke with the cost of producing this. Many people will call him his patron. And especially in ancient times, but even today, uh, oftentimes people, artistic people, will have people who sponsor them, who who pay so they can work, so they can write, so they can paint, so they can do other things. And so he may have been a person who was willing to support Luke in this writing as possible. There's a lot of debate about exactly who Theophilus was. But you can see from this that Acts is just a continuation of Luke. Now, in those days, these these things would have been written on, on scrolls. So instead of the form we have here, this kind, remember, they wrote in the first century on scroll. Do you remember what a scroll is? It's just a rolled up piece of parchment or paper like that, you know. So they wrote on scrolls. What we call a book right here is technically what's called a codex, C-O-D-E-X, codex, codex form of book. That didn't come into real use until about the year 100. So after the writing of Luke, after the writing of the New Testament, these codexes, codices came into use. So Luke would have written probably Luke's gospel on one codex, on one papyrus roll, one scroll, or maybe a parchment scroll, we don't know. And then he wrote the, the book of Acts on the second. So that's why he says here, uh, you know, this is really a continuation in my former book I wrote. So this is really the second part of a larger Luke-Acts work. Uh, The title, as we've already talked about, we don't know exactly why. It's Acts, maybe, of the Apostles. Some say it it denotes the advance of the Gospel. Acts or progress of the advance of the Gospel. We're not sure uh, exactly how the title got attached. What about the importance of this? I hope I don't... uh, Get more music here. When I... <laughs> now it's not going to work. Actually, I got good news. What about the importance of uh, this book? Well, obviously, it's important because it bridges the gap between the Gospels and the Epistles. Um, it would be very difficult to know. Anything about? I remember I always think back when I was in a young boy or a younger boy going to Sunday school. I wasn't a Christian, but we went to a Southern Baptist church down in Virginia, where I'm from, and I would go to Sunday school. Thinking back on it now, I don't think it was a very conservative church, and this would have been many years ago. I won't tell you how many, because I don't want you to be distressed. But anyway, what? <laughs> uh, I, I can remember going to church and, and, and Sunday school, and we we kind of looked at the Gospels, I think, is mostly what we did. But I'm just thinking, you know, I, I remember looking at, like, Ephesians and thinking, what is this book? If you just read Ephesians, Paul, an apostle, you know, writing to the church at Ephesus, what has that got to do with Jesus, right? What, what, is, what has Ephesians 
got to do with Jesus? It, what, what is the connection between these epistles and these gospels about Jesus? Well, Acts is the book that tells us. We wouldn't know who the Apostle Paul was. We just know he wrote these epistles, but the book of Acts tells us about the Apostle Paul, about his conversion, how he was called to be the Apostle to the Gentiles, and his missionary journeys, and how he visited these churches, places like Ephesus. So when we read Ephesians, we know, oh, Paul was there in the church, in Ephesus, and so forth, the church. So it's really extremely important, isn't it? And it explains why it was probably separated from Luke. If, if Luke-Acts was one, one thing, one doc, one thing, two, two papyrus or two parchment scrolls, but one book, one writing by Luke, you can see why it would be separated because it naturally goes in between the Gospels and the Epistles to explain how things worked out. So it's naturally there. As far as... Who wrote this book? We've been talking about Luke as the author all the time. And tradition says it was uh, Luke. That is, the, the book is not named. It doesn't say, I, Luke, wrote this book. It doesn't tell us. Most Many of the New Testament books are anonymous. Matthew's anonymous. In the sense, it doesn't say Matthew wrote it. doesn't say Mark wrote it. doesn't say Luke wrote it. doesn't say John wrote it. Now, Paul says he wrote all of his 13 epistles. He tells us who wrote it. But uh, it's pretty clear from uh, historical evidence, that's why I mentioned evidence outside the book of Acts, the universal testimony of the early church is that it was written by Luke, who is, uh, Paul refers to our dear friend Luke the doctor, the physician. Uh, so Luke was a physician. Maybe We know he traveled with the apostle Paul. We'll, we'll pick him up at Acts chapter 16, probably. is where he'd meet Grace uh, traveling with the Apostle Paul. Maybe he went with Paul because Paul had these physical problems. Remember, Paul talks about, in 2 Corinthians, this thorn in the flesh. That's a thorn in the physical body, some physical impairment. We don't know what that was, but maybe it was something that caused Paul's a lot of trouble. Maybe Luke went with him to help him, to doctor him, and, and other things, obviously. But the evidence of the of the early church, and there's no reason to doubt that. That is, everyone in the early church says Luke wrote this. Luke, the physician, the traveling companion of Paul, wrote this book. And so there's no reason to doubt that. In Acts itself, I mentioned those we sections. So when we first read the book of Acts, it says they did this, Peter did this, uh, Paul did this, but suddenly... When we get to Acts chapter 16, and if anybody needs a Bible, there's some Bibles. Anybody need a Bible? There's some over here. Anybody need one? Okay. Some over here. But in Acts chapter 16, and verse 10, you suddenly see the account changes the pronoun, changes from the third person, that is, he or they did this, he did this or they did this, or you or something. It says, after Paul had seen the vision, 
This is Acts chapter 16. This is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. If you're familiar already with the book of Acts quite a bit, Paul has three missionary journeys there, and beginning in Acts 13, Acts 13 and 14 is the first one. Then the second one starts at the end of chapter 15. And chapter 16, Paul is in Troas, and he sees this vision of the man of Macedonia saying, Come over and help us. And Paul determines this is God's will for him to go over to Philippi, remember, in Acts 16. But it says there in verse 10, it says, After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Matt. There's the first we section. And as I say here in the notes, that we section covers 16.10 to 17. Now it ends right away, which seems to suggest that Luke stayed behind in Philippi. In Acts chapter 17, Paul goes on to Thessalonica with Silas and Timothy. But Luke apparently stays behind to take care of the church. But then there's another we section beginning in Acts chapter 20 and verse 5. It says, uh, this is when Paul is coming back through... uh, uh, coming back through on his third missionary journey, at the end of his third missionary journey, it says he was accompanied by, and he goes on and says, these men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. It's hard to get the geography here, but the point I'm making is Luke joins Paul again. And so I've got that one. That's Acts 20, verse 5 through 21. And then Acts 27, 1, when Paul is held taken prisoner and shipped off to Rome, remember, he appealed to Caesar and he... He sent to Rome in Acts 27, verse 1. Again, we pick up a we section. Um, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy. And that goes all the way through 28.16. So, there was a traveling companion of Paul that went with him. And tradition says that this was the Luke, the writer of the gospel, and the writer of the book of Acts here. Um, Some people have appealed to the writing itself, the Greek terms. There are some medical terms there that are used, which could suggest. doesn't... I mean, I can still talk about a stethoscope, and I can talk about a scalpel, but I'm not a physician, not a medical doctor. So it doesn't prove absolutely, but Luke does use some terms that a physician would use. So it certainly possible that lends some support to Luke as the author. Now, we don't, we don't have to know who the author is. This is God's word. God has given it to us through the, the writing of these men and the Holy Spirit, you know, but we're just curious about who exactly wrote these books and so on, what the relationship was to the people in the book, to Paul especially, and so forth. When was this book written? Well, I guess it doesn't really make a lot of difference to us exactly, but it might be good to think a little bit about uh, dates here. So, if you think about um, when our Lord was born, it's about 5 B.C. You know, I know that sounds a little strange because our calendar is based upon before Christ and after Christ. You say, well, wouldn't Christ be born at zero or something like that? You know, wouldn't that be the day? You remember... But there's a mix-up because of the dating of the cal- the change of the calendars from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar in the 16th century and so forth. 
So most people date about 5 B.C. Christ died about A.D. 30. Some debate about that too. Remember, Jerusalem was destroyed around A.D. 70. The Romans came in and destroyed. The Jews revolted. And so we're talking about a period here. Uh, Paul, we don't know when Paul was saved. We're guessing, 32, 33, maybe something like that. The Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, that's about uh, A.D. 49. So we're just trying to get a rough estimate of uh, Paul's first missionary journey around 46. And Paul is killed, beheaded probably, uh, sometime 60s, early 60s. So the earliest date when this book could have been written by Luke would have been the ending of Acts. Acts Acts ends. Acts 28 ends. If you've read the end of the book, you're not supposed to read the end before you read the beginning. But anyway, if you've looked at the end to see what happens, you remember it talks about Paul's imprisonment at Rome, and he's there in Rome. He's there for two whole years. And it says in Acts 28, verse 30, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And it ends. Uh, With another verse, but it ends right there at that time period. So apparently the book ends at Paul's imprisonment, and that takes us up to about A.D. 62. So in 62, uh, Paul was finishing up his second year of imprisonment. He's finishing up his second year of imprisonment. And so probably Luke just stops right there. There may be a reason why he stops right there, but apparently the the story is over. I mean, the story is uh, Paul is finishing up his imprisonment. Luke is writing writing the book of Acts, and so it finishes right where Paul is at the historical present time. How late could he have written it? Could he have written it in AD 70 or AD 80 or AD 90? How late he could have written it? Well, probably he wrote it sometime between AD 62 and AD 64. He wrote it just probably in a couple year time frame. Why is that? Why do we think that? Well, there's no mention of that AD 70 revolt. That's a tremendously important historical event. AD 70. The Romans came in and destroyed Judaism, they destroyed the temple. They destroyed Judaism. They banned the Jews from Jerusalem. I mean, they just practically, they didn't really destroy it, but they almost did destroy it, just about. The Sadducees didn't survive. What we know about the Sadducees, we know from other people's writings, from the writings of the Pharisees. They survived. The Judaism we have today is really an offshoot of Pharisaism. The Pharisees survived. They established, they were allowed by the Romans to establish a school in a place called Jamnia on the coast there in Israel. And they continued on. And they produced what's called rabbinic Judaism and modern Judaism. We read about the Sadducees, but they were gone. Their, their life was the temple. Their center of life was the temple. They controlled the temple. They controlled all the functions of the temple. That The Sadducean sect or branch of Judaism totally just died out. And so uh, that was such an uh, uh, awesome, uh, 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 earth-shaking event. It was just tremendous. 
And so the fact that we don't see it mentioned in the Gospels even suggests that the Gospels were written before A.D. 70. And we don't see it written in the book of Acts either about it suggests that it was written before then. Uh, I say the Luke connects Christianity with Judaism and thus a legal religion not true after 66 to 70. So the Roman Empire, Rome, the official religion of the Roman Empire was a polytheism, the same gods that the Greeks worshipped. They, the Greeks had Zeus as their head, the Romans had the same god, they just called him Jupiter. They had the same gods. They believed they lived on Mount Olympus and Greece and so forth, the same, same kind of polytheism. Romans allowed a lot of other religions. They allowed other religions to come in. But you had to have the official stamp of approval of, of, of Rome to legally be allowed to worship. There was no you know, freedom of religion kind of thing. And uh, Judea, Jews were tolerated. Jews were allowed. And Christianity, the first few years, kind of went under the radar screen and was sort of tolerated because it was seen as some connection with Judaism, an offshoot of Judaism, which it was very closely connected. But in 66, Nero begins to persecute Christians. 64, really, with the 64, really, with the uh, burning of Rome, he begins to start. And up until that time, Christianity is not... I mean, Paul endures a lot of persecution. We know that. Paul's put in prison, he's beaten and all that kind of stuff. But it's not a systematic persecution by the Roman government. And Luke has a lot to say about that. Luke will talk about that in chapter 18 of this book and show that even a great man like Gallio, the Roman governor of Corinth, of, of, of uh, Achaia, who was in there in Corinth, that he didn't disapprove of Christianity and so forth. So Luke makes a big deal out of the fact that the Romans have not condemned Christianity. Now they did, once Nero starts persecuting Christians in 66 especially after the 64 after the fires of Rome and especially in 66. So Christianity lost its status, begins to be persecuted, especially then 70, 80. For the next 250 years it's persecuted until Constantine in the 4th century sort of legalizes Christianity. So there's no mention of Nero, the persecution under Nero. Luke, as I say, has a high view of Roman justice. He's hoping that Romans will accept this. This is not true after 64. There's no mention of Paul's outcome. So everything suggests probably 62 to 64. So probably this was written shortly after Paul's two-year imprisonment. Now, if, if you survive all this till next semester, we'll talk at the end of there about what happened at the end of the book of Acts. But because you're such wonderful people, I'm going to tell you what happens after the book of Acts. At least I'm going to tell you what church history says. What, what historic, historical facts say is, what we believe are facts, say that Paul got out of prison after Acts 28 and he had another missionary journey, a fourth missionary journey. He traveled around, especially in the West, went into Spain and so forth, and then he came back to Rome and was put to death in Rome. He was martyred in Rome. His head was cut off in Rome. So, uh, there is no mention, as we say, of the outcome of Paul's imprisonment. So, uh, so we assume that Luke is sort of finishing his book right around 62, 63, something like that. But we'll talk more about those dates uh, 
What about the purpose of the book of Acts? Why was Acts written? Well, of course we know God wanted it in the Bible. We talked about it provides this historical data. Does Luke have a purpose? Well, he tells us. And he says, you know, we read in that introduction we looked at before, he says, my purpose was to write, he says about Luke, an account of the things. And uh, I wanted to write this accurate historical record so that you would have a record of these beginnings and so forth. So here's this Theophilus who was receptive, who had questions. We suggest he may have been Luke's patron. There's all kinds of theories about what Luke was doing. There's all kinds of interesting things. They're interesting, but we can't prove one another. One interesting theory is that Paul's in prison, and Luke is trying to trying to influence Roman officials. That Theophilus, he calls him, he, he calls him, uh, he calls him here in verse Luke chapter one and verse uh, three. He says, "Most excellent." He says, "Excellent Theophilus," or some translations say, "Most excellent Theophilus." That's a title that's in the book of Acts is always reserved for Roman governors, always for Roman officials, Roman governors. So many people think this guy was an official of Rome. He had some power. And Luke is writing this to sort of explain who this apostle is. Here's the apostle Paul. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's not a criminal. He's not trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. He's just bringing this Christianity, which is a good religion. He's trying to explain. And so some people think Paul, he may have been writing to sort of influence Theophilus to explain why Paul's in prison and so forth. That could be very well true. Certainly he wants to explain give us a history of Christianity. That's certainly why God wants it in the Bible, so we can know how Christianity became a worldwide religion. It came from Jerusalem, a small city there, in the, no, not a tremendously large city, and all the way to the great metropolis of Rome. How did that happen? How did we get from Jerusalem to Rome? How did Christianity get there? Well, Luke explains that. It's also probable that Luke is defending Christianity, and that's what I was talking about before. Defending Christianity to Roman officials especially. Luke has this sort of, he he reports these cases where Roman officials looked favorably on Christianity, and there was a favorable outcome. We'll see some of those as we go along. What about the structure of Luke? Can we denote any particular layout? Does Luke have a particular structure? It's hard to say exactly, but those who analyze it, and I, I kind of agree with uh, this particular structure that I've laid out there in the book, uh, in the notes there for you, and that is, uh, if you look at it, you have kind of an introductory section. You have chapter 1, verse 1, through 241. That's sort of an introduction to the book, and it talks about some foundational, or some introductory things about the coming of the Holy Spirit about the getting of that 12th apostle, Matthias, and so forth. Jesus' instructions. And then you can divide it up into roughly two major parts, chapters through chapter 12, and then chapter 13 through 28. 13 through 28 is Paul, as we know. And then up through chapter 12 is mainly Jewish. So there's Jewish and there's Gentile. So chapter 242 through 12 is mainly we're talking about Jews, are people who were related to Judaism. There are the Samaritans, and they're sort of half-Jewish people, part Jew. And then there's Cornelius, 
he's not exactly a Jew, but he goes to the synagogue. He's a, he's a kind of a God fearer, sort of a partial proselyte kind of guy. He's not he's not a pagan Gentile in that sense. So mostly it's Jewish in context in chapters up through chapter twelve. Then chapter twelve, in chapter twelve, chapter thirteen through twenty-eight, it's Paul reaching the Gentiles, the pagan Gentiles, who have no contact with Judaism before mainly at all. So you can divide this first section into maybe three parts. And each part has kind of a summary statement. There's the earliest days of the Church of Jerusalem, 242 through 67. And then you can see, we can see how that ends, a kind of a progress report. So the word of God spread, this is 6-7, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So Luke is kind of summarizing what's happened from 242 to 6-7. Then we have the, the events of three pivotal figures. You have Stephen and you have Philip and you have the Apostle Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion. And you have all that that happens. At the end of 931, you have another summary statement. Then the church through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, increased in numbers. Then you have the advance of the gospel in Palestine and Syria, <clears throat> Peter's trips, and then Cornelius and so forth, the church at Antioch being established, and you have a summary statement, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So if you look at these summary statements at the end of those sections, they kind of summarize those particular sections. And I'm going to kind of follow that sort of in the outline here. And then the next section is 12 through 28. We won't look at that tonight. Let's look at uh, page uh, 3 and talk about uh, applying Acts today. That's where it gets a little tricky. Uh, as I say here, let me read some of this. It should be important for all who study Acts or any other portion to determine what principles we use to decide how the present-day church should apply what the book teaches. I was thinking about making this radical statement tonight. But if I, if I tell you this, just don't tell the pastor, please. <laughs> just don't tell him. Don't tell Kim or don't tell the pastor. But I was thinking about making this radical statement, okay? Just bear with me here. There's a sense in which nothing in the Bible was written to you. And that's pretty radical, isn't it? Nothing in the Bible was written to you. Now, what do I mean by that? Bill Combs' name is not in the Bible. You know, Bill Combs' name is not there. So nothing was technically written to Bill Combs in particular, was it? Right? But I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. And so Paul writes to believers at Philippi, and he says different things. You know, He writes to believers at Ephesians. He says, husbands, love your wives. Well, I'm a husband. I'm a believer. Paul's writing to believers, Christians. So I assume, rightly, that that applies to me, right? It doesn't say Bill Combs love your wife, but I can pretty, I can pretty well say that that's true, isn't it? That I should do that. So, but the point is, we have to look at the Bible and see, okay, what things were written to me? You know, remember that story, that crazy story about the guy who was trying to get God's will by by opening the Bible and just pointing his finger. You remember that story about how he he said. Uh, he, he was looking for God's will, and he pointed down like that, and 
he got the verse in Acts. Jesus, Jesus went out and hanged himself, you know. And then he got the next verse, you remember, it says, go and do thou likewise, you know. <laughs> so, you know, how we put these texts together matters. So we have to have certain principles because not everything applies. We know that when we get to the Old Testament, you know. But that's true even in the book of Acts. Acts is sort of a transitional book. It's the beginning of the church. We see miraculous powers. We see apostles who can do things. We don't have any apostles today. There are no apostles with apostolic powers or apostolic gifts or apostolic authority. So things are a little different than they are then. So we have to think about the book of Acts and how we apply it. I say here number two, although they may not be conscious of it, most people operate with what's called a restoration movement mentality. They attempt to understand as much as possible in Acts as either normative for the church or at least the ideal to be approximate, maybe. And I say, number three, there's a good deal of truth in that. We, we will look at the book of Acts and we say, okay, does this apply to us? If it does, then we should try to do it. And that makes sense. But we have to be careful about what exactly applies to us. Um, there are, I say, those instances of the book of Acts which are foreign to one's culture are usually said to be non-binding such as the community of goods that was practiced by the church in Acts 2. Four, at the outset, it must be remembered that Acts is a narrative, not direct apostolic teaching such as Romans. Therefore, one can never assume that just because Acts tells us about something the early church did, it's meant to serve as a model for all future churches, right? So it's not the Apostle Paul giving church truth to Philippi, to Ephesus, to Colossae, and places like that. This is the book of Acts describing what happened. Good things and bad things. Ananias and Sapphira come in and they lie, tell a lie. They just lie about how much they'd given. And they got struck dead. We're just glad, you know, just glad lying doesn't do that to us today, you know. We'd be in big trouble, wouldn't we? So not everything is is, uh, normative or normal. Some are super normal and not something that happens every day. So here's the principles maybe we should look at here. Five, the principles, since God included Acts in the Bible, and it's the only one covering the history of the early church, one might reasonably expect to find some principles which God intended for all churches to follow. And we do that. So we look at the book of Acts, we see how churches operated, and we look for principles. Now we can't follow it exactly because they got apostles in Jerusalem. We don't have any apostles here. And so we don't have that kind of apostolic authority. B, principles were already found first in the explicit authoritative teaching of the apostles. So we're looking for what the apostles said directly. Second, other principles, while not explicit, not direct, may be discerned for in the repeated practices of the early church that are sanctioned by the apostles. For instance, congregational church government is a consistent pattern in the book of Acts. So we look at the book of Acts, we see how the church operated, and we say, you know, they operated with a congregational church government. The congregation, congregational church government means the congregation chooses its officers. And we see in Acts chapter 6, the church chose these people to be deacons. The apostles could have just appointed these guys. You know, the apostles said, listen, <clears throat> we have to devote ourselves to the word of God in prayer, and we need some help to take care of these other matters. They could have said, okay, we're going to appoint this guy and this guy and this guy or this gal or this gal that we could have appointed whoever they wanted to, right? They were apostles, but they didn't. 
They said, look out from among, and you choose. You, the church, choose. So that's an indicator of congregational kind of government. And the question is, then, DSA, third, some principles may be validated by comparison with the teaching of the epistles. For example, congregational church government is also taught in the epistles. So we see it practiced in Acts. What we want to see is a validation of it in the epistles. The, 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 the epistles, where we have explicit teaching to the churches, they teach the same thing. And for instance, Congregational Church of Government is taught because in Corinthians, Paul says about the man who needs to be disciplined, he says that's a church matter. You have to handle this. You have got to remove this man. Paul could have just said, hey, get this guy out. I'm giving you a direct order. This is it. He doesn't say that. He says, you, the church, should remove this person. This is a church matter, a church-wide matter. Church discipline is a matter for the congregation, ultimately. The Lord's Supper. When the Lord's Supper, when some problems are occurring there, Paul appeals to the congregation. He doesn't just write to the pastor of the church and say, hey, do this. He appeals to the congregation. So some matters uh, indicate congregational church government. So we'll try to do that as we go along and see what principles we can discern from the teaching of the book of Acts. So we turn to page 4, and we see an introduction. The foundational elements of the Christian mission. So before we actually get into that first panel, we're going to see some basic elements that sort of help us all the way through understand what's going on. And I've listed what these elements are. The, the ascension of the Lord, that's the first thing we see. Christ ascends, he's alive after his death, he's been raised, he's ascending into heaven, he's going to return. That's very, very important because he gives this commission, here's what you to do, here's what you're supposed to do while I'm gone. The ministry of the apostles and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I've just given a little chart there from Kent's commentary on Acts just about the chronology, about where we're at on those dates and so forth. So, Acts 1, verses 1 through 5, is sort of a resumptive preface. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're resuming where we left off in the Gospel of Luke. Remember I said this was originally a book with two parts, or two books, two part, part 1, part 2. Acts, I mean, Luke 1, Luke 2. And uh, so this is just, Uh, picking this up. I'm going to read here Acts 1. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about the former book. We know that's the Gospel of Luke, so we don't need to say any more about that. Luke's Gospel ends with the ascension of Christ, and that's where we pick up. Now, if we didn't have the Gospel of John right here in our Bibles, uh, it's interesting that in some manuscripts of the Bible, the order is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's Luke, 
and then acts, you know. Maybe we should change that around. We'll have to get a movement to change it around. Because that way, we could just turn the page over here and look back at Luke uh, 24 and uh, verse 50. Remember, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, I'm reading Luke 24, 50, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. <clears throat> That's kind of an interesting statement, they stayed at the temple praising God. Why are these people in the temple for? I thought the veil of the temple had been rent, and Jesus had died on the cross, and there's no more sacrifices and all that. That seems obvious to us today. We have the book of Hebrews. The blood and bulls and goats, you know, they can't take away sin. They can't bring remission of sins. But this was not easy for these early Jewish believers to, to figure out. The temple's still standing. They're still offering sacrifices. What are they supposed to do? The temple hasn't been destroyed. And that's going to be a problem for us or a concern for us as we go through the book of Acts. The relationship of these early Christians to the temple and so forth. We even see the Paul going back to the temple in Acts 21. So... We'll have to look at that. But they, they don't know, you know, they don't understand all that we understand about Christianity right now, the relationship between the New Testament Christian, the law, and a lot of the temple and so forth. The temple's still standing. So uh, it says here in Luke chapter 1 that he gave them instructions till the day he was taken up after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, Acts, this is Acts, uh, Acts 1, 2, verse 2. And uh, these instructions go back to Luke chapter 24 again, verses 48 and 49. He said, you are witnesses of these things. What is he talking about? He says, uh, when he opened their, verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Luke 24, 45. He opened their minds, the apostles, the eleven. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, this is the, you know, the Great Commission, but this is a startling thing to say to all nations, for a Jew to hear that. Why would you want to go to these dog-like Gentiles, these wicked people, these cursed people of God, they don't get this right away. They don't just, uh, they don't, they don't, on the Acts chapter 1 and, ver- and chapter 2, they don't, they don't organize the Baptist Missionary Society, you know. They don't say, let's send missionaries over to Antioch. Let's send missionaries to Rome. They don't send missionaries to anybody. They don't go anywhere. It, it's very difficult for them to pick up on this. We're going to be witnesses to everybody, the whole world. That's... It's not easy for them to pick up. God has to do some things to get them moving on that. So anyway, uh, there are the instructions, and Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. And he tells them, you know, he gives them this commission that they're supposed to go out and be witnesses. And uh, he says uh, in Luke chapter 1, I mean Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. This is a man who rose from the dead. He was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So he gave these proofs. And again, Luke 24, 13, remember uh, this is on the road to Emmaus. 
Now the same day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. Remember that story about how he shows who he is and so forth. So he's giving proof so that they can be witnesses for him. Um, And he says in verse 3, he also mentions the kingdom of God. After his suffering, he presented themselves, many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Um, In verse 6, it's clear that Jesus is speaking about a future kingdom. He says in verse 6, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember when Jesus was on earth, he preached the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. He preached a coming kingdom. He presented and offered the kingdom. The Jews rejected that offer of the kingdom. Uh, Chapter 11, chapter 12 of Matthew, they rejected that offer of the kingdom. And so he says here, uh, clearly in verse 6, he's talking about the future kingdom. Uh, And that may be true here also. It's a little difficult to tell when he says he appeared to them and spoke about the kingdom of God. He could have been talking about the future kingdom. Sometimes, however, it appears in the book of Acts that this phrase, kingdom of God, is used just as a way to speak about the gospel or the kingdom, the gospel. For instance, in Acts chapter, I've put some verses down there, but sometimes, uh, like in Acts chapter 8 and verse 20, it's hard to know how much of the future is included here, because like in Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip, he as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus, they were baptized. It sounds like the good news of the kingdom is the good news about the gospel and so forth, which would include the kingdom, ultimately future kingdom, but it's mainly about the gospel, repentance, and things like that. It seems to be the main thing here. But he tells them in verse 4, don't leave Jerusalem. They may have been tempted to leave Jerusalem. Why would that be? Well, they were from Galilee. If you remember, these apostles that Jesus chose were basically, except for about Judas, all from Galilee. So here's Jesus. He has been, he's, he's going to be leaving. He's risen from the dead. He's going to leave. What are they going to do? Hang around Jerusalem for the rest of their lives? You know, what should they do? Should they go back home? So they may have been tempted, and he's telling them, no, I want you to wait. I want you to wait for something. And he says, remember, Wait for the gift my Father promised which you have heard me speak about. And uh, as I say at the top of page 5, that, of course, gift is the Holy Spirit. Jesus had talked to his disciples during his ministry that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them in a special way. A lot of text on this, but especially, remember, I think about John John's Gospel where he talks about Jesus promises the Spirit. Like John 14, 16. Remember he says John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, he says. And uh, John 14, verse 26. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, remind you of everything I have said. John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will testify about me. 
So he says, wait for this coming of the Holy Spirit. I want you to wait here in Jerusalem and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Now this baptism with the Holy Spirit refers back to the Gospels. The Gospels talk about, you remember, Jesus is going to be someone who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Remember that? John says, I baptize you with water. But there is one coming who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When does this take place? When does this baptize? Jesus says it's future here, doesn't he? He says, for John baptized you water, but in a few days. When does that take place? Pentecost. At Pentecost. And we can sort of know that if we look over at Acts chapter 11... Acts chapter 11, verses 15 and 16 tells us that. Well, not exactly, but pretty close. This is Peter in Acts chapter 11. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you're supposed to be taking this class for the book of Acts, but I assume you're just taking this because you love me. Vince, that's why Vince is taking this class, because he loves me. But... You probably already know most of the story, or all the story anyway, right? So remember in Acts chapter 11, this is after the conversion of Cornelius. Peter has seen a vision, and he goes off to Joppa to this man Cornelius, this Gentile, and he eats with him and all that. That's breaking Jewish law. It's breaking Jewish tradition. It's a terrible thing he's done. And he comes back to Jerusalem, and they say, Hey, buddy, hey, we heard about you. You were eating off of a Gentile. What, what, what are you doing? What's going on here? And Peter says, listen, man, what, what can I tell you? God sent me this vision, and I was just following what God said. Don't blame me. Blame God. You know, I didn't, I didn't really have anything to do with this. And he says here, when he's recounting that, he, he goes into real detail in Acts chapter 11, recounting the Cornelius incident and telling what happened. And here's what he says in verses 15 and 16. He says, as I began to speak, you remember in the Cornelius incident, uh, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, he gives the gospel, and as he's speaking, Cornelius now begin to speak in tongues and show evidence of conversion, of having the Holy Spirit. These people have received the Holy Spirit. We must baptize them. Who can forbid them to be baptized, you remember? And Peter says here, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Now, when was the beginning? Pentecost. Peter says, what happened to Cornelius was exactly what happened to us at Pentecost. This was the work of God at Pentecost, and this is the work of God here in the house of Cornelius. He came upon us at the beginning. Verse 16, then I remember what the Lord had said. John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's referring back to Acts 1.5. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we can know that that baptism takes place on the day of Pentecost. And we can know from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.13 that this baptism happens to all of us when we are born again we are baptized into the body of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 
For we were all baptized. It doesn't say some of us, many of us. For we were all baptized, all we Corinthians, all of us were baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given to drink, one spirit to drink. So Jesus says, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized into the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church. That's why we say the church began the day of the day of Pentecost. Because this baptism first took place on the day of Pentecost. That's when the church began on the day of Pentecost. Well, I see we are run out of time. Pastor Ken's still speaking, so we'll let him go on. And we'll stop here. All right, let's close the word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. Help us in our understanding of God's word and give us grace to be obedient. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.